Aloha, everyone. On behalf of Domino's Hawaii, we wanted to take a moment to thank our team members for working through these trying times. And we wanted to thank our community for not just supporting us, but most importantly, supporting each other amid this climate of change and continued uncertainty. It is difficult to fathom some of the recent tragedies that have occurred, but what we can do collectively is aspire to be better for one another. We don't want to disrupt this message by taking time to promote some meaningless special. All that can be found on our website or app. Instead, once again, mahalo for your strength and your character. And we look forward to our very special community here in Hawaii getting back to work and making the world a better place. And with that, let's talk sports. Hey, what's up, Jordan? How's it going, man? Let's warm things up. A little pregame action, and we're going to talk hoops. Top five prospect, Jonathan Kuminga, is the latest to make the decision to bypass college basketball and opt for the G League, an option that was very recently presented to these blue-chip prospects. He was previously considering programs like Auburn, Texas Tech, Duke, and Kentucky, basically the current who's who in college basketball. So let me just hypothetically throw this out. If you were a top hoops prospect, what route would you choose, Jordan Helly? Boy, I think I am still a sucker for college basketball, right? There is a romanticism to it. And I still think if you can propel yourself, right, Zion Williamson level jolt to fame, um, the exposure from playing at one of these Blue Bud programs, I think can even be more value once you get to the NBA, all the promotional aspects because if you go to the G League it's a bit of an unknown right there's a little bit of a purgatory factor to it how much are you going to be exposed to the everyday fan the everyday consumer when it comes to buying your sneaker or whatever product you're endorsing even if you're going to go make what half a million dollars or something like up to what these guys can make in the G League so I, I think I'm still a sucker for college long-term gain might still be I mean I, and again Zion's the exception but in my dream scenario I am Zion uh, so that makes sense. And plus, uh, why not go be a kid for a year at college? Actually, who am I kidding? They go for like a semester. Why don't you be a kid for like a, four months in college and, and get that experience and then go make your millions? Yeah, I mean, if some of the recent reports that have been coming out are accurate, then Zion made way more money going to Duke than he did if he went to the G League or any other option professionally. But uh, I say that only half jokingly. Uh, but yeah, I just think it depends on what your set of circumstances are. I mean, if you are looking to help your family, if you feel, and I, I would imagine, uh, particularly going through this pandemic, maybe there are even more things like that to think about for these prospects. Like, we got to get some some coin here. I got to bring in some money for my ohana. Uh, then I understand, hey, look, the G League is an opportunity to at least make six figures. It's not going to bust the bank. Uh, maybe you don't get the the same sort of profile bump that you would going to a top-notch college basketball program. Uh, and so you got to do the math, right? Do I sort of hold on and maybe not make the immediate amount of money that I can make, but benefit from some of the shoe contracts or potential endorsements that would be awaiting me because of my higher profile going through the college, which is a more branded system? Or do I just try to make a paycheck here, go to the G League, because I'm going to end up in the NBA anyway. At least that's what the prognosticators are suggesting. Uh, and so I'll, I'll make my money at some point, the sooner I can start getting a little bit of revenue and income for my family, the better. So I, th I just think it's a, a set of circumstances. I'm with you though, personally, uh, the romanticism of the college venture, I think, just wearing whatever program you decide to wear, uh, wearing that on your chest, wearing that on your jersey. Uh, I think there's still something to be said about that. But again, we're a little old school now, right? We're not necessarily part of this brand new generation of guys who have had this option now thrust upon them. All right, so let's now uh, welcome you to the show. Welcome to this latest episode of Let's Talk Sports with Kanoa Leahy and Jordan Helley. Uh, boy, we got a doozy here today. We got the CEO of the World Surf League Eric Logan joining us for an interview, uh, and that is because it's a hot topic right now. A brand new announcement just publicized here today. This is uh, July 17th that we are recording and posting this episode. Uh, but the WSL officially cancels the 2020 season amid the pandemic, while at the same time simultaneously revealing a brand new format for the 2021 season that will feature a Hawaii-based kickoff so basically the women 
uh, in their tour will be starting in November. At least that's the scheduled start time for the Shiseido uh, event, which will take place at Honolulu Bay. Uh, and then you have on the men's side, a North Shore kickoff scheduled for December. Uh, and so this is a, a new deal that will feature Hawaii in a different kind of construct. It will not be Hawaii to end the year uh, and perhaps be the backdrop for the crowning of a champion. It will instead kick off the year. Uh, and so it's a very different vibe, and, and we're very uh, excited about uh, what Eric Logan, who is relatively new to this gig, he's only been on the job for a little over six months. We're very excited to hear what uh, he has to say about those changes and what they may portend for the World Surf League moving forward. He's a fascinating guy, Eric Logan. I think a lot of people are going to enjoy the conversation, just his background, his enthusiasm for the job. Uh, and I think his mindset that has really helped steer the WSL in this new era, if you will, which I think is really going to intrigue a lot of folks, whether they're fans, their media members, or even those on tour. All right, so let's get to our game time discussion topics and preach on JR. JR Hensley, former offensive lineman for the University of Hawaii, former captain for the team, has spoken out on social media, basically calling upon the NCAA to, quote, do better. He is arguing that the NCAA should just go ahead and cancel the upcoming season in the name of safety, considering that players haven't had the appropriate amount of time to train and or prepare their bodies physically or otherwise for the rigors of college football and obviously he's saying hey look if you're going to be the Pac-12 or the Big 12 you're going to cancel non-conference games then that already is sideswiping mid-major programs like the University of Hawaii so if the University of Hawaii is then relegated to playing a less than schedule at least in the grand scheme of things thus minimizing certain levels of exposure and opportunity for those players just go ahead and cancel that thing you know what, let's let J.R. Hensley tell it in his own words. This was a clip that came courtesy Cody Krupp at KITV. This is what J.R. Hensley had to say. If we're talking about having an eight-game season, I mean, is this really worth all of these, all of these sacrifices we're going to have to make? How are you going to look a junior or senior in their eye and tell them that's how that's going to go down? I mean, I wore a college football 150-year celebration on my chest last year. And that's because every year a kid gets to go fall, spring, summer, fall, spring. Every time you get that much time to work in between of your craft, you just get that much little bit of time. But I mean, now you've got kids that are going three, four, five weeks tops of training, get sent right into it live, prime time. And by week four, by week five, are you not worried about kids tearing their ACL? Are you not worried about, I mean, are, are these, this is their livelihood. I mean, this, is, this, is, this will make or break these kids. For me, as I saw that the Pac-12 went ahead and, and canceled non-conference games, these are the exposure games for these kids. I mean, this is, this is all they have right here. This is their, their bread and butter film. This is, and not even that, like, this puts them on a higher stage where those games are nationally televised. And for mid-major non-Power 5 schools to have those taken away from, that will kill us. And David Matlin has been doing a fantastic job at trying to make sure that we're, we're getting as, as much as we can. But when you make a decision like that to cancel non-scheduled non games, like non-conference games, it destroys programs like Hawaii. All right, Jordan, do you agree with JR's take? Yeah, I agree with a lot of what JR is saying, right? There is this very big unknown when it comes to the lack of preparation right there was no spring football summer workouts have been very abbreviated at best what what's it going to look like once these teams actually get to playing football games how much time are they truly going to have to get their bodies ready to get physically ready to go out and play not alone a football game but a football season and so if you're talking about a watered down abbreviated season where you're not having those big money games, those high exposure national televised games, is it worth it? Is the reward worth the risk? Because the reward, as we keep going throughout the season, I know Hawaii's starting to try and fill some of their schedule, right, with the Robert Morris edition to take Fordham's place. Uh, that's not going to grab a lot of headlines, right? The, the reward keeps getting diminished the closer we get to the season. And so you're asking these guys – to go out and unprecedented. Nobody knows, right? I mean, this is pretty unprecedented. Nobody really knows the roadmap 
to get their players and their teams ready. I mean, they're doing the best that they can. I'm not saying that they're, you know, uh, going at it from an incompetent standpoint, but it's just there's a whole lot of variables that teams haven't been faced with. And if we're going to have a season where you're not really going to have the full benefit, doesn't it make more sense to at least cancel the fall, try it in the spring, something along those lines uh, as the closer we get to it. So I, I think JR makes a lot of really good points, especially for a guy who just finished his playing career and has been in that mode uh, and a guy who's pretty well tapped into the current players, especially on the University of Hawaii, right? And it is a different perspective, I think, coming from a mid-major program than it is, say, a Power Five, where you're still playing, you know, your entire conference schedule and you're playing all those high-profile games, uh, even if it is a, a bit of an abbreviated schedule. I, I think he makes a lot of really, really good points coming from the perspective of a collegiate athlete at that level. Um, in the FBS. You would imagine the Mountain West is not likely to be a conference that will be in the pole position on this movement to change the season, right? I think a lot of it will have to require one of the Power Five conferences making that call, or at least a more banded together approach with various Group of Five conferences. Uh, I don't think this is necessarily one that one of the Group of Five conferences themselves individually can lead even though I think that that's likely where we're headed. And I think the importance of that is you got to have some form of a college football season and even a spring abbreviated form, which gives you maybe more ample time based on what J.R. Hensley is suggesting to prepare your body physically and mentally uh, to prepare yourself for that season, to have a semblance of college football where you can reap the rewards of certain revenues. Hopefully at that time you can actually accept people buying tickets and attending games um, to have at least a semblance of that is so much more important uh, and, and such a better scenario overall, financially speaking and otherwise, than not having football at all. Uh, I understand the Titanic endeavor and the, the massive, colossal challenges faced in trying to establish something like a football season in the spring. I mean, I can't even begin to understand the ramifications and logistical challenges that would introduce themselves. But you got to do what you got to do. Desperate times call for desperate measures. By the way, how good is J.R. Hensley? Like, uh, shouldn't he be in a broadcast booth somewhere as a color analyst? Like, the dude is smooth, man. Yeah, he's a, he's a bright dude. Well-spoken. All right, we move on. Uh, we have another defeat by a Hawaii fighter in Abu Dhabi. Uh, this occurred on fight night Wednesday here this week. Uh, UFC featherweight Dan Ige saw his six-fight win streak ended after a unanimous decision loss to Calvin Cater on Fight Island in Abu Dhabi. So the streak is snapped for Ige. Uh, Cater came in as the eighth-ranked MMA featherweight in the world, uh, inching closer now to a possible title opportunity. Uh, Ige loses for the first time since his UFC debut in 2018. Rob DeMello posted this statistic on Instagram, so uh, props and uh, credit to him. Uh, dating back to 2010, BJ Penn, Kendall Grove, Martin Day, Max Holloway, Dan Ige, 0-5 collectively in Abu Dhabi. Is it time to ban Hawaii fighters from Abu Dhabi, Jordan? Yeah, that place got a bad juju, man. And it gets worse, right? Because I think in two of those fights, you could very well argue that Hawaii fighters should have won, right? Max, obviously, on Saturday, and then you go back to the old BJ Penn fight. So it's like, you know, I, I think that makes it almost worse, right? Because it's like, well, not only are they losing every time, they're losing fights that they should have been winning in some of these, right? And, and I think it was a fair decision in the Dan Ige fight, uh, for sure, um, on Wednesday night. But yeah, Abu Dhabi. I, I'd, I'd caution, I'd caution the Hawaii fighters from from making the trip. It's like clear across the globe, man. It's about as far as you can go from Hawaii. There's something about it. I don't know. They're fighting at like six thirty in the morning, Abu Dhabi time. Like it's just, it's yeah. No. It's just the irony of guys who originated on an island traveling to another island called Fight Island to fight when very easily the UFC could have just picked like. Molokai or Lanai or any one of the Hawaiian islands to have fight island like come on guys we could have done it over here and this is unfortunately the bachi that actually somehow is levied onto Hawaii fighters like it just makes absolutely no sense and just is a reminder of how cruel uh, and ironic the world can be sometimes all right time to get to our dominoes Hawaii uh, main topping so let's go ahead and play that interview with Eric Logan WSL CEO 
All right, here with WSL CEO Eric Logan and an exciting announcement, obviously, with the official cancellation of the 2020 season, uh, but the revealing of a new format to start here for the 2021 season, which actually will start later this year. At least that's the scheduled time in Hawaii. Jordan and I, uh, we record this podcast on Maui. That will be the starting point for the women's tour. When did this idea germinate? What was the starting point of this? Wow. Um, it's, been a, it's been an evolved one. But first of all, I want to say thank you and aloha to all of our friends over there in the islands. And uh, Maui, my second home, uh, all my friends up in the upcountry in Kula want to say aloha. Uh, and uh, Jordan, and, and by the way, Grandma's Coffee's house uh, is, you know, I'd, I'd be staying up on Thompson Road and go down to Grandma's Coffee House and get my, get my coffee and, and uh, just go for my run up on that down Thompson Road. So, um, but anyways, just want to say thank you for having me. I'm super, super stoked to be here. Um, so, uh, you know, listen, if you sort of rewind the clock a little bit, um, as sports fans, uh, as we all are, uh, one of the things that I'll never forget was um, in mid-March, I think it was March 13th, um, I was driving actually to go to our facility down at um, San Diego, just outside San Diego with Waveco. Uh, we actually do a lot of our work and run operations. I get a phone call that Rudy Gobert has tested positive for COVID. He played for the Utah Jazz, and he was playing in my hometown of Oklahoma City. And so all my friends who actually were at the game were like, bro, what's happening? And I'm like, well, first of all, I run professional surfing, not the NBA. So why you're calling me, I have no idea. But apparently they knew somebody in sports. And, you know, we had to move real quick at that time. And we immediately made some changes and kept athletes from traveling because we saw the country started shutting down and subsequently had to cancel the Gold Coast and, and made an announcement in April went on hold. And our thinking about going on hold in April was really we had, we had many, many uh, changing factors, which was we really didn't know what was happening with the virus. And what was happening in the United States was not what was happening in many other countries. Every other country had its own protocols and they had their own way of treating it. They had their own versions of lockdown. I mean, for you guys in Hawaii, you guys could still surf. You know, I live in LA, I couldn't surf for a long period of time. And, and so there was just a lot of different aspects to it that were changing. So in and around sort of mid-May, we had a conversation about, all right, I think we've got enough time. If we can make a decision in June, we can get enough with stops in, utilizing our existing calendar. We think we may be able to move the tour around and be able to do it at the World Championships and get it done. Um, it became very apparent in June uh, that just international travel was off the table. I mean, as, you, as, as everyone knows in our sport, international travel is like the most critical thing that actually is next to, to great waves. I mean, I could have great waves at Snapper Rocks, like I've been watching Snapper being pumping. You guys were pumping during quarantine too. Nobody outside of you know Hawaii or Maui could get there uh, or Honolulu. So, um, so we had to make a pretty hard but yet obvious decision that we were just gonna run out of time to get the tour done. At the same time, what we had started concurrently was how do we use this pause? Because we have this unbelievable pause in, in, in the sport to really innovate for the first time ever. And, you know, we worked with our tours and competition team. We worked with uh, a lot of our surfers, a lot, of, a lot of our partners and our friends. And we were like, what does the future of professional surfing need to have? What does it need to be? And so we developed a thesis of like, let's go all in on this time. Um, and we really buckled down and tried to put forth the announcement that you guys have now seen. Um, and we really feel that what this does is a couple of things. It, it stabilizes uh, the professional surfing. Um, I think that, you know, in, in a COVID environment, for sure, even pre-COVID, there was some questions about the stability. The industry was taking some downturns and there's been some economic impacts to it. Um, but we think that the core of professional surfing is the CT tour for sure. And we think stabilizing that is the most important thing. The second thing we wanted to do was put waves of innovation that not only excited our surfers, but excited our fans, excited you, excited our partners. And so um, that, that's where it all sort of started. And then when we had to make the obvious, easy, painful decision to eliminate 2020 off the table from the tour, we said, that's it, let's go. Let's, let's come out of COVID and let's come out of this pandemic with this new tour. Well, your credibility here on Maui is off the charts just by mentioning grandmas, because that is a, a classic staple for sure. Uh, and I do kind of want to get into uh, where Hawaii is valued with regard to the tour overall. 
Uh, but I think we'll, I'd rather go back to uh, just the fact that you've been in this position for a little over six months. Obviously, your timing is impeccable because uh, here in this first year, you had to meet this challenge of the pandemic. But obviously, you had uh, certain changes and influences that you wanted to put onto the tour in mind already. So uh, you kind of talked about this pause. Has this in some ways been, at least to that end, a blessing in disguise to afford you the chance to apply some of these changes that, that, or, or these influences that maybe you had in mind previously? Um, I don't think it was a blessing in disguise. I think it was a blessing. I don't think there was any disguising it. Um, you know, you can choose to look at a crisis or you can choose to look at uh, opportunity um, any way you wish. Um, you know, just my spirit and, you know, certainly the work that I've done in my career uh, and in my professional life has been, I choose to look at things from a place of extreme optimism, uh, rooted in reality and grounded in fact, but yet approach things from an optimistic point of view. Um, the pandemic's awful. Um, it's out of control. Um, there's a lot, it's, it's heavily politicized. Um, I try to tune that out um, because there, there's nothing I can do except try to do my part, just like all of us we can do as family. Um, but I looked at it as a, a moment in time. And the question I challenge, and I'll share with you guys, and I don't think I've said this sort of publicly, but I'll share with you and your listeners, a little bit of the challenge I said to our team. I said, here's what I want to focus on. What are the things that we might regret not doing five years from now when we look back at this moment in time? So said differently, it's like, go put yourself out like five years. And you're going to look back and there's going to be all these stories of companies that survived, companies that flourished, companies that went away and took advantage of this period of time, however long it's going to be, and say, wow, I wish I would have done that. I wish I would have done this. I wish I would have done that. We should have done this. We should have done this. I say, let's do it now. And so we embarked on just a lot of change. And so, um, you know, the team really rallied around that. But yeah, so, and, and also I think that the timing of me become, becoming CEO you know, was, you know, was divine uh, to, to a certain degree. You know, I, you know, maybe I've hung out with uh, your fellow Maui neighbor, Oprah, too long in my prior career, <laughs> uh, which tells you why I know a lot about Maui for sure. Um, but one of the things that, you know, I've learned and is part of how I try to lead our company and lead the sport is, you know, through a place of, of, of intention. And, you know, we're trying to move the sport into a better place. So, um, you know, it's, it, it really is an amazing opportunity and it, with it comes a lot of change and it comes a lot of uncomfortability, but if you're doing it from an intentional place, it's really great. What do you think are the elements of this recent announcement about the new format for 2021 going forward uh, that will spark the most excitement or intrigue? Uh, is it the starting point? Is it Hawaii sort of as the starting point as the PGA Tour once was uh, for many years? Or is it the uh, single day world title event? Uh, you even look ahead to where you're going to have a mid-season cut to create what will be a little bit more of an elite uh, set of matchups to open some of the late season uh, events. What aspect of this do you think will spark the most intrigue publicly? Well, I think it kind of depends on how you, you, you look at it, Kanoa. I think from which you look at the announcements of all those great things, I think people are going to choose different things because it always gets filtered back to it from a fan perspective. How does that impact me as a fan? Or if I'm a business, how does that impact me as a business? Um, I would tell you that I look at it holistically. I think the power in doing all of these innovations and driving it forward really has the amplification one plus one plus one in this case is closer to 10. Um, so I'm excited about the, I'm excited about all of them. Um, I'm excited about the totality and the, and the consistency of the change as well. I think that there's just a lot of things when we start unpacking a bit, why the cut's important, what it can do for future tours. Um, I, I think when it comes to Hawaii, look, I mean, I, I, I'm, I, I, I get giddy thinking about starting the tour in Hawaii because, you know, I just think that beginning points of seasons are magical. Um, not that the end is not, but beginning points are magical. You know, every surfer is there for the same thing. I want to win the world title. You know, and, and in some cases with our women in Honolulu or our men at Pipe, you know, sometimes you're entering that, that contest with only four or five people in contention. I think, number one, by, by, by moving it to the beginning, it allows us a couple of things. It allows us to really deepen our partnerships with, you know, 
with, with your community, with North Shore community, um, all the partnerships that we have with the state, we now can actually like ramp into a year and celebrate the heritage of Hawaii and the importance of surfing to the culture in a way that you can't necessarily do going into the, the world championships. Um, surfers have a different mindset. They're, they're, they're much more excited and open and optimistic versus the end of the year, we've got triple crown at play, um, you've got requalification at play and you've got the world championships at play. And so sometimes, you know, everybody's just like really locked in. Provides a great drama for the fans, but boy, just, I mean, we could sit here for the next seven podcasts and talk about all the great things we want to do to kick off the season and, you know, Honolulu or, or Pipeline. So uh, I'm excited by that a lot. It very much seems like a celebration to, to, to get the, the season off in, in that sense. Um, you mentioned some of the change, and I would imagine, you know, some of that is embraced, some of that maybe there's a little bit of pushback, but what's the general sense, uh, at least early on, sort of in this announcement stage, from, from the surfers themselves uh, as to the structure of this? We, we saw uh, some of the comments from, from John John Florence, Hawaii guy, former world champ, who seems to, to really be excited by this. Is that kind of representative of, of what you've heard from, from those on tour? Yeah, I think, to be really honest, I think, first of all, all of our world champions um, love to compete in the arena. And the fact that we now can put a format with WSL finals forth uh, that we will crown world champions in the water. Um, I don't think it's, it's not a small thing to, to not look at what happened last year at Pipeline with Italo and Gabrielle. I mean, that, that in my mind, at, you know, really before the pandemic, that was the fuel, jet fuel for me. Um, and I looked at that and it was like, oh my God, that was it. And, and, and everybody watching, it was the most watched heat in the history of our sport. And when you look at it, it's like, okay, so let's really sort of unpack that. And we only had like 45 minutes to really promote it. We didn't really know if it was going to happen. They just lucked out. They were on the other side of the draw. And there's so many things that are out of our control to actually put forth that. I'm like, well, why don't we just begin with the end in mind and sort of back up? And, and look, the, 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 the surf-off idea has been around the, the tour for a while. Um, there was several conversations with our ownership group and our surfers about this. It just never got punched through because there was a lot of factors at play. Um, we worked with them on the format. Uh, they're embracing of the format. Um, the, the seasonality, which is a more of a subtlety uh, in the tour announcement about ending the tour in the August-September timeframe, really allows us some powerful tools in our toolbox. Um, we, it opens up the planet in terms of locations that you could go crown these world champions. Um, as you guys know better than anybody, that you know, it, it takes a very special swell angle and day to get Honolulu to go. Um, and you know, that, that is, and it only happens at that time of year. Whereas when we know if we were in December, if we had our tour normally, we know we're pretty locked into there. So by actually beginning and celebrating Hawaii as the birthplace beginnings starting, we can feel that energy. By actually ending the tour in this August, September timeframe, it unlocks the world. I mean, that is the time of year where the most waves, the most high performance waves are anywhere available to go. So um, that, that, is a, that is an important thing and our surfers recognize that. And I think you know, part of what really is important that I think from a fan's perspective, because that's really what I, I, I look at this from a fan's perspective a lot, is I want to see our, I want to see the best surfers in the world in the water against the best surfers in the world in waves that really challenge them. I want to see that. I want to see, we need to push them. And they all want that. And that's why, and specifically with John John, John John, he's really excited about, about the followers, as, as all of them are. And, and I think it's just going to be a journey to get there through this COVID thing, but it's pretty exciting. Yeah, you mentioned uh, unlocking the planet, and that's always what's fascinated me about just surfing and the WSL in particular, just how truly global the sport is, right? I mean, I, I don't know if there's any other circuit in sport, maybe like Formula One racing or something like that, that maybe is as truly global. Uh, and, and as you reimagine this thing, uh, especially considering, right, all the, the travel restrictions as they currently are, and you, you've touched on that, but how important was it to maximize the global nature of the tour and the fact that, I mean, you guys are on nearly every continent on the globe at some point throughout these 10 events. Critical, um, you know, critical. Uh, our surfers will be the first to tell you that there's a lot more waves out there to be challenged and to be on. I mean, that's part of the reason why 
even we couldn't we couldn't do it but you know going back to g land was going to be such a, a powerful thing we hadn't been there since i think 97. um that's exciting uh that's it's an amazing left-hander that you know God, who doesn't want to see this crop of ct surfers surf that thing um you know the like going to portugal is is exciting you know and i think that you know we have to find ways to inject it we have to keep the core of what we have there are just certain stops that are iconic um and we all we can all we all know pipeline is one of those stops that is iconic um you know honolulu is an iconic place bells beach you know the list goes on but there's many opportunities for us to look at other ways to take our surfers and challenge them. Um, they need to be excited. Uh, one of the things I think that is important for your listeners to, to hear is they too want to be excited about traveling and being challenged. Uh, so, you know, finding that balance of like, okay, we need to go to Sakurama or we need to go to Tahiti or we need to go to these places that we need to go to because they are world-class waves and testing, you know, obviously the ultimate proven ground of pipeline. What we need to be able to do is find ways to put new stops in there. So what the calendar does is it really gives us a way to unlock it. And the second thing, by the way, to the unlocking part, which is a great question, Jordan, is when we have the mid-season cut in 2022, it's going to allow us to run on one swell cycle. So one of the big challenges we have with our tour today is it takes about five days to run. And as you guys know, as surfers, we, you don't get a swell that lasts five days. It's quality. It really is. It's like two to three days. So what we think we can do by having a smaller tour for the back half in 2022 specifically is getting on one swell cycle is going to improve the competition. It's going to improve the consistency. It's going to be a better fan experience because when we come up, we can stay up. And also, as we start thinking about that, it's a little bit of a lighter footprint. It's not the biggest tour. It's now down by a third. That then introduces other opportunities for where we could go as well. Will the criteria for the single day world title event, the surf off, uh, so to speak, will that be entirely on uh, what is projecting to be the, the best possible swell at that time? Uh, what other considerations could be made? Uh, will it at all involve who is in the running at that time when you guys are starting to consider uh, possible locations? No, we're going to lock those in. So we haven't announced the location for or 21 yet, uh, but we know where we're going to go. Um, we think that that could be a really exciting element for the fans as well. I mean, when you think about um, the, where we can be, think about that there's a potential that every year it could change. Maybe it doesn't change for two years. But again, that, that time period gives us so much flexibility. But what we will do, and this was some great feedback from our surfers, to be honest, um, was they don't want it to be a surprise. I mean, they're competing for a world title. You know, if we throw them, you know, if we throw them in a, in a boat and send them out somewhere and be like, okay, you're going to go surf this way that you haven't surfed, you know, hey, here's Skeleton Bay. It wouldn't work because of the time, but you know what I mean? It's like, you know, here you go. We wouldn't do that. We want them to perform at their best. We want to crown a world champions at the best, beating the best at the best time. And so we'll let our, surf, we'll let our fans know too. Um, there's great commercial opportunity um, for us as, a, as, a, as an organization. And, and how I think about, about that is that we can now, not like celebrating Hawaii as the start of our tour, These, the ending point of our tour can be a location where it can be a different one potentially. So there's so much, the, the, the tour, this version of a tour, I think just feels like more of a moldable clay versus something we had that was very locked in and very rigid. And frankly, guys, you know, I mean, I've talked to a lot of our surfers and a lot of our legends there hasn't been certainly this level, but hardly any real tour competitive innovation in our sport since 1976. I mean, literally since the start, it really has been predominantly what it's been. Well, that's why I'm, I'm fascinated by how you have approached this position here uh, so far. You've referred to it as your dream job, even though you have uh, done some really incredible things uh, throughout your career working for XM Satellite Radio, the Oprah Winfrey Network. Um, but there's something about surfing and I, what I find also fascinating about the sport itself is it is almost by definition based on its origin. Uh, it is anti-establishment in many ways, like many other extreme sports uh, tend to be. Uh, but it is growing in popularity. It is becoming so much more mainstream. You have a media background. So it seems as though your view of it is, you know, we can expand that part of it, what it represents as a media platform on its own. So how do you 
sort of balance those two aspects of surfing, of it being sort of this free anti-establishment uh, athletic endeavor, and also trying to maximize the fact that it is a legitimate mainstream sport business. Yeah, it, they run incongruent, you know. Um, that's one of the things that is really, really, really challenging. Um, so the way, the way I think about that um, with our teams um, is our job from the World Surf League is to actually showcase the best surfers on the best waves in Crown World Champions. Our, our focus is there. Our focus is looking at young boys and girls who want to start as a young junior and work their way up. We want to make sure at the World, at the World Surf League that that pathway to professional is solid, stable, because that, that pipeline for us is critical to the future of the sport. In any sport that you look at, um, or any industry around a sport, whether it's apparel, whether it's golf, whether it's football, or it's the NBA, at the heart of it is a healthy, vibrant, competitive league. All of them have it. They have to have it. And, you know, we haven't been that. We have to be very intellectually honest. We, as an organization and as a business, we haven't, we haven't really been there. So my focus, my laser focus has been, let's get this part right. Let's focus on the organization. Let's focus on the business. And, we're gonna ha and the way we're going to do that is through media. And the way we're going to do that is through by telling these stories about these amazing athletes we have doing these superhuman things in a variety of ways. So here's a good example. Um, you guys probably have read about it, and you'll be able to see it uh, at some point in the future soon. Um, ABC has bought a, a competitive reality show called Ultimate Surfer. And we took seven boys and seven girls, and we, have, we put them at the surf ranch. And when the show comes out, what you'll see is it's a competitive, it's a competitive reality show with surfers competing for an opportunity to win wild cards on the CT Tour. Now, that has nothing to do with promoting John John and Carissa. But what it does is it actually takes a sport, the point of our sport, and brings it over here. And I'm able to commercialize and now link it back to the CT. Now, raising the awareness of that and raising that platform and the other things that we're doing with like our Kelly doc that we've announced and other things we have coming, that raises the focus to our competitive surfers. That feeds into people watching our play-by-play. -play. More people watch our play-by-play, -play, two amazing things happen. First, the profile of our surfers goes much higher. Our surfers get on these massive networks now. We get shows sold to these other streamers they become bigger superstars. They then can monetize that themselves through their sponsors and the way that they do their business. The second is that, that revenue stream of more eyeballs, that media engine that we're now putting around our league actually help, helps propel the economic vessel forward. And that symbiotic relationship between competitive, competition, and commerce, that's, that's, that's the way we think about it, competition and commerce, by thrusting that forward, what we're able to do is say, hey, we actually have a vibrant business. And just to take that a step further, because we're kind of on this, Kanoa, it's a good question, is when we think about the tour announcements, there's, there's like four major elements about the CT tour that we've announced. There's the start of the year, there's the mid-season cut, there's the final cut, which is the last season, of the, and then there, is, then there is the world title. All four of these moments become massively important to the media part of our business because they're important to the fans. They become something for sponsors to lean in and activate. Number four, number three, from a media perspective, I now now can go talk to all the countries in the world and say, I've got distinct points in our tour for you to showcase and participate in. And fourth, it, inv it, invigorates, it invigorates the fans and the surfers. And our surfers are so important to us. So that's kind of how we think about it. And, and, and that's a way of sort of bringing it together and not trying to um, you know, make it so anti-establishment. The anti-establishment and the whole anti-surfing and the anti-WSL anti and all that sentiment, that's always going to exist. And by the way, it's important that it's there. That, that's an important narrative that's out there. Um, I'm not tone deaf to it, I'm in it. Um, you know, I, I, I love the sport, so I'm very aware that it's there, but it doesn't bother us, does not bother me. Um, and it's an important narrative for us to maintain. Um, no, I, I was just saying, Eric, it's such fascinating stuff and, and just the business side of it. And I don't know if it is just 
coincidence, but I, I was kind of curious on, on that note that you were talking about surfing in the Olympics and it's coming up next year and it kind of coincides sort of at the end of, of this new revamped format, right? How does that um, sport being involved now in this global event raise the profile or, or how does the WSL sort of tap into that um, as this becomes another platform for surfing to be showcased to the globe? It, it's huge. Um, our, our new schedule, even our schedule this year, had we ran it um, as constituted, afforded the break for our surfers to compete at the Olympics and also the ISA World Games, uh, if we were to have it this year. Um, but the Olympics are, are, are really, really important. Um, it, it, it will do so many things for our surfers who are Olympians, because we've got a number of WSL surfers who are Olympians, obviously John and Carissa for Hawaii, for sure. Um, their profile goes to yet again another another level. Now that helps us from a WSL perspective because stars drive sport. A lot of, as we know, it's like if you have 50 basketball games and Michael Jordan's only in one of them, almost 98% of people are gonna watch the one that has Michael Jordan. So, you know, we see that when when John John's in the water, even when Chris is in the water for the women, when Kelly's in the water or Gabrielle's in the water, we see the numbers go up. So the Olympics is important because of the profile. Um, In 2021, our tour, the way it would be constructed, it would be that we would do the WSL finals after the Olympics, the way the calendar would be sort of laid out, given what it would be. So we think that that's a really interesting time to actually have the final final five for our, our men and our women, have the Olympics take place, and then, um, actually, no, I'm sorry, actually Tahiti would take place uh, after the Olympics, and then we'd have the final. So it's um it's a it's we we definitely want to make sure we don't have to put our surfers in a position where they have to choose gotcha i was kind of curious eric just uh kind of diverging a little bit asking a bit about yourself uh, you mentioned oklahoma city is your hometown we talked a bit about your media background how does how does that guy pick up surfing as a passion and then end up being the head of the wsl well it's going to be a great book one day uh i'll tell you jordan it'll be a great book one day um it, it there's there's so many versions of this story that go in length, but I'll just give you a short one. Um, so I was obviously Oklahoma, uh, landlocked state. It's the one the one looks at the frying pan. Um, we had a bit of an identity crisis in Oklahoma, um, and um, career sort of zipped me across the country. Uh, never really knew how to swim. Not a fan of seafood, and lived in San Francisco and lived in New York and just would never go anywhere near it. Um, running Harpo uh, for Oprah Winfrey uh, for seasons 24 and 25, we create own. And once we ended the Oprah Winfrey show, we had some challenges in Los Angeles with the network and uh, Oprah. Uh, we ended the show on May 25th, 2011. Um, I got called to her office on May 27th, 2011, and she said, "I've got it. I, I've got something for you." And it was basically a one-way ticket to uh, LAX from Chicago O'Hare. And I moved to LA. I moved to an area called Manhattan Beach, which is still my home. And my wife's father uh, and mother lived there. And so I had been vacationing in Manhattan Beach with our daughters. So our daughters kind of felt like, oh, we're here seeing grandma and grandpa. So we wind up living there. And literally, literally, Jordan, as a joke, and I'm not kidding, as a joke, on my 41st birthday, my wife bought me a wetsuit. So I have the kooky photo of all of us. The first time you put the zipper up the front, I've got the kook of the day photo set, ready to go. Um, and, um, I finally decided to walk out in the ocean, like that March or whatever it was, it felt like a suit of armor to me. I felt very protected and started boogie boarding. Uh, I mean, I kind of went through the progression. I had fins. I was, I had a tray, the old school tray thing and boogie boarding and, and made the jump to stand up paddling for quite some time for probably like five or six years. And that unlocked the world and traveled with Laird and uh, Dave Kalama, uh, who was one of my closest friends right up there on the hill too. Um, and, uh, you know, it was been very blessed to have, you know, Dave, Dave, Dave Kalama, um, I will say probably has done more for me from a surfing point of view than any one single person. Um, and he lives up in Kula as well. Um, he, you know, he took me under his wing and, you know, I knew, the, the royalty of what Kalama is, certainly on Maui. And you know, my God, can we just talk for a minute about Austin? Jesus, I mean, what that kid's doing. Um, but he, he really sort of taught me. And then uh, I started progressing more and I started playing with a lot of different crafts and I have many investments in the industry. And 
you know, now I'm pretty much, you know, just kind of surfing whatever it throws at me. I travel around with my seven, seven, I have a seven eleven stand up paddle board and I've got six, two firewire. I've got a couple of infinity short boards and I've got a, I've got a log. So I kind of, I go with my little golf cart down to the beach with a small quiver and I, I literally have every craft. And <laughs> so, uh, I'm just, I don't know, man. It's, uh, I mean, I, I, I could go on forever, but I'm 49 now. Um, so I've been doing this for eight years and everybody at the WSL and all the professional surfers, they all kind of, they kind of, they kind of, they don't make fun of me, but they always will be like, you know, they're like Elo, they call me Elo. They're like, Elo, you're just like a little frothy grommet. And they, I think they kind of like it too. It's kind of, you know, that's, you would expect me to be in a suit. You expect me to be crusty and be like, ah, and it's just sort of like, I'm like, dude, it's pumping. We got to cancel the meeting. Let's go. You know, so that's kind of the way I rule, you know, so. Uh, I love it. I mean, uh, I'm, you get me talking about surfing. It's like it's like catnip, Jordan. I can just I'll, I'll get way off screen. <laughs> well, I'm pouring just a little more catnip on because I read that uh, Oprah referred to your time surfing as you going to church, uh, and everyone sort of has that spiritual connection with surfing. So uh, this is a very existential question, but kind of what does surfing mean to you? What does it do for you? Mm. Um. Well, well, I'll tell you, I'll tell you why she said that, uh, which is a really powerful story. Um, you know, she, she knew me pre-surfing, you know, obviously, because I was working for her in Chicago. And she noticed this change in me that I became, you know, less frenetic. I was more grounded. I had a greater sense of balance. Um, I was a bit more peaceful, you know, through my day. Um, and, you know, we did a lot of work in the, obviously in the African-American space, but we also did a lot of work in the, you know, uh, space of, of uh, personal growth. And that's a big part of what we did, you know, for those 10 years I was with her. And, you know, she would meditate heavily, she'd journal heavily and we'd do this. And, and one time we were flying back from an event or whatever, and, and we, were, we were together and she was, it's, I don't know, I was probably surfing like four or five years at this point. I, had, I think I just came back from Fiji and I took a, I took a beating at lefts that actually scared Uncle Dave. And I think Uncle Dave was thought he'd like, oh, sh oh shit, he's going to die. I was getting cleaned up on a very, very big day on the inside. And, you know, we've all had that. And that's the day that you think you see God, you know, and you get such a respect for the ocean that you can only a good proper beating and a reef tour can give you. And I was talking to her about it, about how it, and I was getting, I got very emotional. And she said, she said, my friend, she goes, that is now your sanctuary. That is your church. And um, to make that point, there was a meeting, I don't know, two years later. And there was a conference call like at 8.30 in the morning or whatever it was, LA time. Uh, and there was all these people on it, people from New York. And everybody's like, where's Eric? We've got to start. He's the CEO. Da, da, da. And quietly and calmly, Oprah goes, he's at church. He will be here shortly. And I dial in and then Oprah said, were you surfing? And I said, yes. Yeah. She goes, I knew it. It's fine. So it was like the ultimate hall pass. I could call her and say, hey, listen, I got to go surfing. You should do it. Um, what it does for me daily, because if there's, if there's rarely a day if I'm at home that I'm not in the ocean, even if it's just complete garbage, I'll paddle out, um, is it's my grounding source. It is, it is the place where I connect with something much bigger than myself. And, and I think that, I think you can get that a lot of places in life. And I think that right now as, as a country and as a human race, we need, we need grounding and we need to find a sense of purpose about one's self. What surfing puts me in is, is in that place. Um, and it's really not about the turn that I can make or more appropriately said the turn that I can't make, but the one in my head that I think I can make that I can't make. But it's really about that connection with, with one. Um, you know, there's no other sport that I'm aware of that I can really compare it to that you're actually harnessing and riding raw energy. Because that's what a wave is. It's raw energy. And you're able to do that in a way that is just beautiful. It's not manufactured. So um, yeah, I mean, it, it's a tricky question. Tricky question, Kano, because I could, I could sit here for hours and go, go incredibly deep. But, uh, but yeah, it, it's, it's, it's so it's really important to me. Somebody said to me, they go, we just want to make sure that you have salt in your veins if you're going to run the WSL. I'm like, I got that. Don't worry. I'm good.
It certainly seems that way. Last question, uh, you know, it seems as though every time we feel like we've reached the limit of what these guys can do, whether it's on tour or even the subculture of free surfers out there, uh, we see them taking it to another limit, doing aerials and doing tricks that we've never seen before. Where can this thing go in, in your vision, in your mind? Uh, where are we with surfing and, and, and what is the ceiling if there is one? I don't think there is a ceiling. I really don't. I mean, um, I had this conversation with um, one of our surfers the other day, and we were looking at what some of these kids are doing. I mean, look, I'm, I'm at Surf Ranch. I'll just, I'll pick on another great Hawaiian, you know, Shane Dorian. Um, you know, Jackson Dorian, who I'm just mesmerized by this kid. I mean, I, was, I looked at a video recently where, you know, here's Jackson Dorian, you know, hunting, doing errors, and doing stuff that I've just, I, I've never seen. And you know, here is Uncle Kelly, his godfather. They're on, they're not on the same board. They're on two different boards, and he's like putting him in the barrel, going, "This is kind of what you need." Now Jackson, you know, is just you know, it was born on the North Shore. He's great, but if you look at like Crosby, Colin Pinto, you know, the other Griffin's, you know, um, Griffin's younger uh, brother. You look at Connor's younger brother. Um, you look at some of these juniors, you know, I, I love watching the junior championships and I mean, they're attempting turns and hits on places on waves that I've, I've not seen. And it's just a matter of time before they land it. Um, you know, I, I'm so excited by the air game that our surfers are doing right now. And certainly made hugely famous with, you know, with what's happening with Coquipa and everything on the North shore there, which is like, you know, and again, Kai Lenny, who's a great friend and, uh, Aloha to Kai and Martin and everyone there. Um, but, you know, you look, at, you look at what people are doing above the lip, and that's before we talk about him doing it at Piahi, which is a whole nother level of, like, mental madness that I don't even know what to do. Um, it's exciting. Um, and I think we need to lean into that from the World Surf League. And, you know, I think when, when, I, think, when, I, think about, when I think about where we can go, I think that – we have, to, we have to not ask the question of where can we go. We have, to, we have to actually sort of reframe it from let's empower it to go where it needs to. Because I think if we ask where it can go, we sort of start from a position of like, that's where it maybe should go. I'm, I'm more of like, hey, I want, I want to push it in all directions because I don't think we know. Uh, and that's what gets me excited. You know, that's what gets me excited is seeing, is seeing the innovation and the progression. But the progression in the last five years has just been mind-blowing. It really has. Well, Eric, we really appreciate it. It's an exciting announcement that was publicized. And so thank you for spending time with us uh, talking about not just that, but also your passion. And we wish you the best of luck here moving forward. And we'll keep our fingers crossed that this thing gets rolling according to the schedule. So thank you. Hey, listen, I'll say thank you, Kanoa. Thank you, Jordan. Um, thank you to our friends uh, in Maui. Please, everyone stay safe. Stay safe on all the islands. But uh, we love you very much. Aloha. And uh, we'll talk soon. All right. Thanks once again to Eric Logan. Super cool dude. You can absolutely tell he is a guy who is passionate about surfing. I found that to be one of the more fascinating aspects of that interview was delving just into his pure love. Right. You see, like presidents and commissioners of other sports organizations aren't necessarily immersed in those respective sports in the same way. Right. I mean, Adam Silver wasn't like an NBA standout. Uh, certainly Roger Goodell didn't play in the NFL. I'm not saying you had to compete at the highest level, uh, but I'm not sure how many pickup games Adam Silver is out there playing while they're in the bubble in Orlando. Right. Whereas you have a guy like Eric Logan, who is very active in getting in the water and understanding and absorbing that culture that is associated with surfing. I think that makes a big difference. And for a sport like surfing, I kind of think that that's essential or at least ideal. You're saying Rob Manfred's not out playing stickball in the streets? <laughs> I don't know, man. I guess, I guess we got to ask him. The Whippleball uh, King, it. Rob Manfred? Yeah, yeah, Rob Manfred, the Whippleball King. Um, Dana White, you know, I don't know. He might be sparring every once in a while. But um, Elo, right, as, as he said, the guys call him. He, he lives it, man. He lives surfing. Uh, as he pointed out, uh, he's got to have salt in his veins, right, to, to run that league. And, and it really does seem like he has adopted the sport. The sport has adopted him. Uh, and it has been a nice marriage so far, you know, six months on the job as the top guy for the WSL. It also gives us hope that we can become better surfers here because he didn't pick it up basically until he was in his 40s. So we still got a chance here. Yeah, my odds are probably not very good. <laughs> They have those soft tops now at Costco. Let's go ahead and uh, pick one up there. All right, time for us to take a break. When we come back, our post-game best and worst. 
For our listeners on the Valley Isle, the Maui Flag Football League is on this summer starting as early as July 1st. The MFFL is a youth flag football league for boys and girls ranging in age from 3 to 18, broken up into divisions of seven different age groups representing five districts, upcountry, Wailuku, Kahului, Kihei, and Lahaina. The goal of the MFFL is to teach the game of football without the worry of violent contact, concussions, or weight cutting. It's all about having fun, being active, and making new friends while reinforcing important values like teamwork, perseverance, and respect for your fellow players and coaches. For more information on the Maui Flag Football League, please call 808-280-7513 or email mauiflagfootball at gmail.com and get signed up. All right, back to the show. All right, Jordan, time for the post-game. Best and worst. What is your best here for this episode of the pod? Yeah, my best. Have you seen these national championship rings? Multiple for LSU. Uh, Our guy, Luke Dudley, Maui boy, uh, who actually had on the old radio show when that was going, is an assistant equipment manager for LSU, including their football team. Uh, And he also got the three championship rings. They got an SEC championship ring, a national title ring, as well as a ring from the college football playoff committee in celebration of their title. These things are studded. I mean, it is blinging. And they got three of them. I mean, so I mean, if you're going to go put together a historic season like they did 15-0, and one of the, uh, I think, more celebrated seasons in a while, it's pretty, pretty impressive stuff and uh, pretty cool. There's a little Maui connection there. Luke's got the, Luke's got the bling, man. He's kind of living the life over there. He has uh, reaped the benefits of being associated with a top-notch program for sure. Did you even see the hula bowl rings that were doled out not too recently? I well? did, yeah. I mean, that's, uh, I mean, those are, are, are top-notch, top-level, legit championship-like rings. So, um, you know, hopefully they can uh, find a couple extra for the announcers of that game. Yeah, no kidding. We, didn't, we don't get any? <laughs> we don't get any. Come on, man. Don't kid yourself um, like I have. All right, so uh, my best is Bryson DeChambeau and his staggering ball flight numbers. This was an article that came out on ESPN.com the other day. Basically, just talking about how crazy far DeChambeau's hitting the ball this season. The most 350-yard or more drives since the PGA Tour restart, Bryson DeChambeau has 29. And the next closest is Matthew Wolf, who has a swing speed of like 1,000 miles an hour. So DeChambeau's just powering that thing, uh, time in and time out. The largest year-over-year increase in driving distance over the last 15 years, Bryson DeChambeau picked up 20.5 yards in average distance from 2019 to 2020. Uh, That is the highest and over six yards average more than what Tiger Woods accomplished back in 2005. And then the shortest average distance to the hole after a tee shot in a single season since 2005, uh, Bubba Watson holds the record inside of 150 yards out. That's on average after tee shots for an entire season. Uh, That was in 2014-15. DeChambeau currently 149.2. So he is bettering Bubba Watson by about half a yard there uh, statistically. So I just kind of wanted to bring up those mind-boggling numbers. Like he's carrying like 325 in the air and it's rolling in some cases 375. Like it's just stupid, man. And then you have Brooks Kepka, who sort of uh, intimated that maybe DeChambeau should be tested for like PEDs. And I'm thinking, Brooks, if there's anybody doing PEDs, it kind of looks like you. <laughs> these guys are just mashing the ball, man. It's great. What is it? So he's got on average, like for these pros, was that like wedge for him, right? He's like, oh, I'll just pound the driver. I don't even need any irons. It's just wedge on in. Uh, I was watching a little bit of the first round on Thursday. Uh, they shot tracer. He carried one 345. Oh, my God. Oh, my goodness. DeChambeau uh, did. That was the carry, the ball flight. Well, the worst of this episode for me could be my drive by comparison and just how short it is, but I will go another uh, route. I'm going to go with uh, my worst first being uh, Reddit, uh, recalling the take that George Sedano of ESPN posted back in March on Twitter. And I just think it's funny, especially looking back on it now where we are, the NBA looking to resume here shortly. Uh, If he were running the NBA, this is what he put on Twitter, he would suspend Rudy Gobert when play resumed because he tested positive for the coronavirus, like a suspension for testing positive for the virus. Like, was Rudy Gobert stupid? Yeah. Was he clowning it in front of the media members, wiping his hands all over the microphones? Yeah. But you're going to start putting out suspensions for guys getting viruses and getting sick? Like, George Sedano, bro, bad one. And, of course, Reddit 
We'll recall that bad boy here as the NBA is getting ready to restart in the bubble. Reddit finds anything, man. Reddit finds anything. Um, I mean, it kind of worked out. At the league got suspended for like four months. So, <laughs> you know, in a way, Rudy Gobert got suspended for a bit. Yeah. We've all been suspended. All right, what's your worst to finish things off here? Yeah, my worst earlier, we're talking about college football, right? Uh, my alma mater, uh, Occidental College, just announced on Wednesday that they are canceling all fall sports. So a lot of the not-for-profit athletic programs across the country, whether it be the Ivy League, you know, at the Division I level all the way down, there have been a multitude of Division Three colleges, not just Occidental, but uh, they have announced no football, no fall sports of any kind in the fall semester. Uh, they're going all online. So the, the worst part is the reality setting in. I actually support their decision. Uh, I think it is a smart one to do, but uh, the reality of it still is, is a major bummer that uh, there's not going to be any football. Uh, not going to be anybody really on campus there at Oxy this, this fall. I think California junior colleges made the same decision, right? Same so, decision, uh, yeah. That's not one of those, or they're going to shift it to the spring. Like, they're just canceling it here uh, flat out, yeah. at least at the moment, that is the plan. Uh, but, yeah, it's a bummer. You're right, the harsh reality of this thing. And it also is a reminder of the only reason why the NBA is trying this experiment and the WSL is trying that and the WNBA is trying that uh, and college football is still holding on to hope to have a season in the fall is because of money. As you mentioned, Ivy League, junior colleges, Occidental, schools of that nature, programs of that ilk, um, they're not worried about the money. So they're just going, hey, look, this is the, the move in the name of public safety that we're going to make. Uh, whereas on all of these other big money businesses in sports, they're like, we can squeak out a year. We can figure something out. Uh, and that's just the, uh, the tough reality and the balance that you have to uh, somehow come to grips with here in the world of sports. Uh, once again, uh, big thanks to Eric Logan. Maybe we can call him Elo now after that long discussion with him. I'm hoping so. That might be a little presumptuous, but we want to uh, thank him uh, for his generous time. That'll do it for us. Hit us up on Twitter at Kanoa Leahy, at Jordan Helley, at TalkSports808. Jordan, until next time, have a good weekend, buddy. You too, man. See you soon.